This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thank you to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. Good afternoon and welcome to Starry Nights. Starry Nights is a program about astronomy, what there is to see in the night sky, and how it may have got there. We'll explore some of the myths and legends that are associated with objects in the night sky, and we'll examine some of the technologies that are helping us to unravel the mysteries of the universe. My name is Gary Sparks. I'm the director of the Hawke's Bay Holt Planetarium, the sponsor of Starry Nights. Brilliant Jupiter is the evening star these days, appearing low in the west soon after sunset. Below Jupiter are Saturn and Mercury, although Mercury is going to be difficult. The three planets are equally spaced down the sky at the beginning of the month. All three slip lower from night to night. By mid-month, Mercury and Saturn will be fading in the twilight. Jupiter stays in the evening twilight until February. The crescent moon was just above Jupiter on the 6th. Early in the month, Venus could be seen setting in the southwest, but it quickly disappears from the evening sky as it passes between us and the sun, then reappears in the morning sky. By the 20th, Venus will be rising an hour before the sun. At the end of the month, Venus is up two hours before the sun. Above it is Mars, looking like a medium brightness orange-red star. The moon will be to the right of Mars on the morning of the 30th, and well to the right of Venus on the 31st. Mercury is then below the moon. Sirius, the brightest true star, appears in the east. Left of Sirius, as the sky darkens, are bluish Rigel and orange Betelgeuse, the brightest stars in Orion the Hunter. Between them, but fainter, is a line of three stars, making Orion's belt Tautoru. To southern hemisphere star watchers, Orion's belt makes the bottom of the pot, or the saucepan. A faint line of stars above and right of the belt is the pot's handle, or Orion's sword. It has a glowing cloud in its center, the Orion Nebula, easily visible in binoculars. Left of Orion is the V-shaped pattern of stars making the face of Taurus the Bolt. Now the V is upside down, mind you. The V-shaped group is called the Hyades Cluster. Orange Aldebaran, making one eye of the Bolt, is not a member of the cluster, but on the line of sight at half the cluster's distance. Left again, toward the north and lower, is the Pleiades star cluster, known to the Maori people as Matariki. Pretty to the eye, and very impressive in binoculars. If you're traveling further north this summer, from northern New Zealand, the bright star Capella is on the north skyline. It appears as a faint yellowish color, one of the few yellowy colored stars that are visible to us. Water is an essential ingredient for life on Earth. It is all around us in our oceans, rivers, clouds, and our bodies. But where did it come from? Some scientists argue that it was bound up in the rocks that glommed together as the Earth was born out of a spinning disk of debris 4.5 billion years ago. Others believe Earth was dry for half a billion years or so until it was bombarded by comets and asteroids bearing water. But neither hypothesis can completely account for the amount or composition of water we see today on Earth. Now an international team of scientists believe they may have come up with a missing source of Earth's water, the sun. 
Their analysis of tiny fragments of an asteroid and experiments at the atomic scale suggests that hydrogen in the solar wind produces water on the surface of dust grains, they report in Nature Astronomy. The idea is that water, covering specks of dust floating around in the protoplanetary disk, was incorporated into planets and asteroids as they formed. On the outermost parts of mineral grains attached to asteroids or as dust particles, we find a very thin layer of water that is associated with a very thin layer of hydrogen that has a solar contribution, said study co-author Steve Reddy of Curtin University. The solar wind component might only be a small component, but it's an important missing component that we know from the isotopic analysis of water. Most of the water on Earth, known as light water, is made up of two atoms of hydrogen bound to one atom of oxygen, H2O. But a small amount of water on Earth is made out of heavier atoms of deuterium, an isotope of hydrogen with an added neutron, bound to an atom of oxygen instead, D2O. The ratio of deuterium to hydrogen in water tells us about where in the solar system it came from. Most comets and asteroids contain water with a slightly higher ratio of deuterium to hydrogen than on Earth. So there's always been a bit of an ongoing debate about how that light component of water gets to Earth, Professor Reddy said. Only one type of asteroid, known as an enstatite chondrite, contains a similar ratio to water on Earth, but they are very rare, so they can't account for the total amount of light water. To find the missing source of water, the team led by Luke Daly turned to a technique known as atom probe tomography to study the chemical structure of grains of dust from an asteroid called Itokawa. The Japanese mission Hayabusa returned dust particles of a mineral called olivine from this stony asteroid between Mars and Jupiter to Earth in 2010. The set of samples we analyzed are incredibly small. They are thousandths of the width of a human hair, Professor Reddy said. They also blasted samples of olibine collected on Earth with hydrogen to simulate the effect of the solar wind, as well as deuterium. Over time, we can build up a three-dimensional image of the chemistry and also the composition of the material, Professor Reddy said. Analysis of dust from the asteroid and the lab samples showed an increase in hydrogen and deuterium in the outer layers of the particles. So what will happen is that the hydrogen will hit the mineral and will produce some sort of defect, and some of those defects will capture the hydrogen. In other words, the hydrogen breaks the bond of silicon and oxygen in the olivine and combines with oxygen to make hydroxyl, OH, and water, H2O. The team said the discovery also meant there could be untapped reservoirs of water on the moon, as well as asteroids. The ability to trace water in the crust of a speck of dust is really neat, said planetary scientist Trevor Ireland of the University of Queensland, who was not involved in the study. It's an amazing result in terms of being able to resolve differences in the content of the top 50 nanometers to be able to establish that it's water, said Professor Ireland, who previously analyzed samples from Itokawa. He said the potential of the solar wind to generate water had important implications for establishing a base on the moon. If you can establish that there is actually water being generated in the lunar soil by proton bombardment by solar wind, then that gives a potential resource in the future for water supply. This is actually one of the first demonstrations that it may actually work. Whether or not the solar wind was a major contributor of water to the dust that made up Earth is still up for debate.
Going back 4.5 billion years and trying to assemble players and the timing becomes rather complicated, Professor Ireland said. But he added, the finding opened up the possibility that light water was delivered to, to the Earth on asteroids later on. Different types of asteroids have different levels of water content. While some, like Itokawa, are only wet on their surface, others can contain up to 10% water. There are lots of potential sources of water in the solar system, and they all have distinct signatures, both in hydrogen as well as oxygen isotopes. So going forward, we'd like to see some of those predictions tested by looking at oxygen isotopes and potentially nailing down the proportion of these sources in the early solar system, he said. There will be more opportunities to dive deeper into the mystery of Earth's water soon. Along with Itokawa, Professor Ireland is also involved in missions retrieving samples from two other asteroids, Ryugu and Bennu. The Ryugu mission returned to Earth just last year in the South Australian desert, and the first results from the sample return are just coming out now. The Bennu mission is expected to land in 2023. Well, if you think we've had some very hot weather recently, you might reconsider A small planet that is as dense as pure iron has been discovered hurtling around a nearby star, like a cannonball. The rocky planet, which lies about 30 light-years away in the constellation of Vela, is about three-quarters of the size of Earth and half as massive. Dubbed GJ367b, the little world takes less than eight hours to orbit a red dwarf star half the size of our sun. It's the smallest, fastest-moving planet that we've got the precise measurements of, said Christine Lamb of the German Aerospace Center, who led the international team that made the discovery. This is a unique object with a short orbital period and a high density, Dr. Lamb said. While it may not be the densest exoplanet ever discovered, her team's measurements, reported in the journal Science, indicate it is denser than any rocky planet in our solar system. Its high density suggests that the planet is dominated by an iron-rich core, like Mercury. This is like an iron ball planet orbiting out there, Dr. Lamb said. Small worlds that zip around their suns in less than 24 hours, known as ultra-short period planets, are very hard to detect. This discovery paves the way for future exoplanet scientists to find smaller and smaller planets, hopefully like something in our solar system or something completely different. The first hint of this extraordinary planet came as dips in light around a star detected by NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, TESS, in 2019. Fleeting winks of light created by the planet passing in front of the star gave the scientists an indication of the planet's radius. To confirm the signal was a planet, we needed to go through a lot of rigorous ground-based follow-up observations in order to check whether this was real, Dr. Lamb said. The team used the high-accuracy radio velocity planet searcher, the HARPS instrument in Chile, to measure how much the star wobbled back and forth to work out the planet's mass. The ability to measure the mass of such a small planet with such precision was an incredible achievement, said Jonty Horner, an exoplanet hunter at the University of Southern Queensland, who was not involved in the study. That we can measure this star that is 290 trillion kilometers away, and we can measure the speed with the precision of 80 centimeters per second to detect this planet is astonishing. The star's wobble is almost slower than walking pace. The team calculated the planet's density by combining the radius with the mass. You're probably looking at a bigger version of Mercury, he said. About 80% of our solar system's smallest planet is taken up by a metallic core, making it the second densest planet after Earth. 
The core of the newly discovered planet is estimated to take up a similar proportion to Mercury, but with a density of about 8.106 grams per cubic centimeter. The planet is much denser than either Mercury or Earth. It's unclear how such a dense planet formed, but like Mercury, it may have been hit by something else when it was young, which stripped off most of its outer layers. Mercury was initially twice as big as it is today, and that collision stripped away the mantle and the crust, leaving just a core and a little bit of rubble on top, Professor Horner said. Now, here comes the temperature part. Temperatures on Mercury can reach up to 430 degrees Celsius, but that's a walk in the park compared with the newly found planet. Ripping around at speeds of about 240 kilometers per second, it is much closer to its red dwarf star than Mercury, which takes 88 days to go once around our sun. It's so close to the star that any atmosphere that it's got would have been stripped away, Professor Horner said. The lack of atmosphere would contribute to GJ367b's apparent density. It also means temperatures on the planet are predicted to reach up to 1,500 degrees Celsius, hot enough to melt iron. And it's probably locked in position with one side permanently facing its star, while the other is exposed to the vacuum of space and has no light coming in. You can imagine this rocky little world that is baked on one side and frozen on the other, Professor Horner added. Obviously, it's not somewhere you'd want to go on your holidays. Why would you want to go anywhere when you live in beautiful Hawke's Bay? Anyways, you're listening to Radio Kidnappers, the voice of Hawke's Bay, broadcasting on 1431 AM and 104.7 FM. Now, before we complain about the sun again, in a few billion years, the sun will end its life as a white dwarf. As the sun runs out of hydrogen to fuse for energy, it will collapse under its own weight. Gravity will compress the sun until it's roughly the size of Earth, at which point a bit of quantum physics will kick in. Electrons from the sun's atoms will push back against gravity, creating what is known as degeneracy pressure. Once a star reaches this state, it will cool over time, and the once brilliant star will eventually fade into the dark. Most stars in the universe will end as a white dwarf. Only the largest stars will explode as supernova and become neutron stars or black holes. There are lots of white dwarfs in the Milky Way, but many of them can be difficult to study. For one thing, white dwarfs don't produce energy in their cores as regular stars do. They cool and fade as they age, so we need to see the youngest and brightest white dwarfs. So we tend to see the youngest and brightest white dwarfs, pardon me. Observations of white dwarfs are also biased towards those with the smallest mass. That's because the more massive a white dwarf is, the smaller it is. The reason for this has to do with the balance between electron degeneracy pressure and gravity. In a white dwarf, the electrons act as a sort of quantum gas. The more massive the white dwarf, the more tightly its gravity can squeeze the electrons, hence a smaller volume. Fortunately, we're getting better at studying smaller and cooler white dwarfs, as a recent study shows. The team used data from the Gaia spacecraft to find white dwarfs within 20 parsecs of Earth. In addition to known white dwarfs, the team identified about 100 white dwarfs that had never been catalogued. They then looked at the spectrum of these white dwarfs using the ISIS spectrograph and polarimeter on the William Herschel telescope. Since the spectrum of a white dwarf is affected by its magnetic field, the team was able to measure the strength of their magnetic fields. They found an interesting result. There is a correlation between the age of a white dwarf and its magnetic field. The older a white dwarf is, the more likely it has a strong magnetic field. In other words, white dwarfs tend to become more magnetic as they age. This suggests that white dwarf magnetic fields are created through the cooling process of the star.
We aren't sure how the cooling process magnetizes white dwarfs. The magnetic fields of larger and younger white dwarfs might be explained by a dynamo mechanism, similar, similar to the process that generates Earth's magnetic field. But the magnetic fields of old white dwarfs are often much larger than we think can be produced by a dynamo. So something strange is going on, and it will take more research to solve this mystery. I'm just going to take a break for a moment now just to mention our sponsor, the Holt Planetarium in Napier. The planetarium is open to the general public on Sunday evenings from 7 p.m. until 9 p.m. Main show starts at about 20 past 7 or so. So if you're intending to visit on a Sunday evening, do show up around 7 p.m. Admission prices are $6 for students and seniors, $10 for adults, $25 for a family of up to six. Show takes roughly an hour to an hour and a half. No bookings are required, but you will need your vaccine pass and you will need to bring your mask along with you. So do come and visit the Holt Planetarium. It's located on Chambers Street on the grounds of Napier Boys High School. If you'd like to find out more information, you can visit the website, www.holtplanetarium.org.nz, or give us a ring, 8344-345. Right, back to our program, Starry Nights. Back in November, NASA launched a spacecraft with the sole purpose of crashing it into an asteroid moon. The mission will be the agency's first spacecraft mission for planetary defense. Asteroid collisions with Earth are the only natural disaster that can be prevented, and while there's no looming threat right now, or even in the next 100 years, based on the asteroids on NASA's radar, it could be a problem down the line. Think of this simply as NASA planning ahead. The plan is to test what's called the kinetic impactor technique, where an asteroid or object near Earth is nudged off its orbit, avoiding a potential collision with the Earth. This will be the first demonstration of the technique. A small group of New Zealanders are part of this historic mission to test the Earth-saving technology. Dr. Michelle Bannister, an astronomer from the University of Canterbury, describes it as the spacecraft giving the asteroid moon a little nudge and the moon doing a little shimmy afterwards. DART has a specific object in its sights, a 163-meter-wide, 4.8-billion-kilogram moonlit asteroid called Dimorphos that is orbiting a larger, 780-meter-wide, 528-billion-kilogram asteroid called Didymos. It will take almost a year to reach, and when it does, Dimorphos will be around 11.2 million kilometers from the Earth. The collision is planned for either late September or early October. On its approach, the spacecraft will take photos of the asteroid moon to show its size and shape. Around two days before impact, an asteroid camera will be deployed, and then four hours before impact, the asteroid moon will be targeted by the onboard navigation system. Then, at go time, DART will fly into the center of Dimorphos at around 6.58 kilometers per second and will have an impact mass of 560 kilograms. The collision should decrease the Moon's 11.92-hour orbital period by around 10 minutes. Telescopes on Earth will be used to measure the effects of the impact on the asteroid system. After DART collides with Dimorphos, Bannister Research Fellow Ryan Riddick Harper and potentially a handful of students will be looking up. We are going to poke the asteroid and see what happens, Bannister explains. They will be watching the asteroid moon before, during, and after collision, after the collision to see what happens to it. Around 30 telescopes around the world will be doing the same monitoring, but the most southerly telescopes, like New Zealand's, will have the best view. 
The New Zealand team will be using the 1.8-metre telescope at Mount John Observatory in Tekapo. This is often used to take images of planets and other deep space objects. While it might not be the biggest ground-based telescope in the world, some having up to 10-metre collecting mirrors to this one's 1.8-metre, it's the right tool for this job based on its location. The telescope won't be looking at the surface of the asteroid moon because it's too far away and too small. Instead, it will be looking at the measurement of light, the photometry. The 1.8-metre telescope is well-suited for this type of observation. Dark matter is notoriously difficult to study. It's, an essentially, it's essentially invisible to astronomers since it can't be seen directly. So astronomers rely on effects such as the gravitational lensing of light to map its presence in the universe. That method works well for other galaxies, but not so well for our own. To map dark matter in the Milky Way, we rely mostly on the motions of stars in our galaxy. Since dark matter attracts regular matter gravitationally, the method works well for areas of the galaxy where there are stars. Unfortunately, most of the stars lie along the galactic plane, making it difficult to map dark matter above and below that plane. But a recent study proposes a way to map more of our galaxy's dark matter using runaway stars. Most stars in the Milky Way are gravitationally bound. This means they will spend their entire life in the Milky Way. They can speed around the galaxy, orbiting the galactic center like our Sun, but they don't move fast enough to ever escape from the gravitational pull of the galaxy. But some stars do have enough speed to escape. They are known as runaway stars or hypervelocity stars. Either through a close encounter with a black hole or perhaps a supernova, they have gained tremendous speed and are on their way to leave the Milky Way. Fortunately for this latest study, hypervelocity stars often have a path that takes them away from the galactic plane, so we can study how dark matter affects them to map dark matter in our galaxy. There is a catch, however. The speed of each hypervelocity star depends mostly on the interaction that gave them a kick. We can't simply look at a star and say the faster it's moving, the less dark matter is nearby. Instead, the team looked at the distribution of hypervelocity speeds and directions to give a statistical view of dark matter. So if, statistically, hypervelocity stars tend to move slowly in a particular direction, that can tell us about the distribution of dark matter. Unfortunately, there are only a couple of dozen known hypervelocity stars, which isn't enough to make a good dark matter sign. So the team created a simulated sample of hypervelocity stars based on whether dark matter surrounds the Milky Way in a sphere, a flattened ellipsoid, and other shapes. They found that the samples we currently have are consistent with a symmetric distribution of dark matter, sphere or ellipsoid, and that's the shape and that the shape could be further pinned down with a sample of only 400 to 800 hypervelocity stars. That's far more than we currently have, but new telescopes and sky surveys should detect these numbers in the future. Hypervelocity stars aren't the only tool we have to mark dark, map dark matter in the galaxy, but as this study shows, they can be a powerful tool. It gives us further motivation to find and track these speeding stars. They might just have one more lesson to teach us before they leave the Milky Way together. Now, they may be rare, but we do discover them from time to time. Have astronomers have, have clocked a pulsar careening through space at a mind-boggling 4 million kilometers per hour. It seems to have been kicked to such high speeds by its parent supernova. Researchers announced the discovery last year at the High Energy Astrophysics Division meeting of the American Astronomical Society. They spotted the pulsar from low Earth orbit using NASA's Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope along with the Carl G. Jansky Very Large Array in New Mexico.
Thanks to its narrow dart-like tail and a fortuitous viewing angle, we can trace this pulsar straight back to its birthplace, according to Frank Schintzel of the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in New Mexico. Pulsars are one of the most dramatic phenomena in the universe. They are rapidly spinning neutron stars, which are the cores of collapsed giant stars. As these dense neutron stars spin, they emit beams of electromagnetic radiation that can be detected only when pointed toward Earth. Thus, their signals seem to pulse, giving them their name. The speedy pulsar was discovered in 2017 using Fermi data and a citizen science project called Einstein at Home, which uses regular computers' idle time to process astrophysical data. After crunching 10 years' worth of numbers, Schinzel and his colleagues calculated the new pulsar's incredible speed and its direction as it moves through space. The pulsar, dubbed, here we go, PSR J0002 plus 6216, or J0002 for short, I'll just call it J, is 6,500 light-years away from Earth and 53 light-years away from CTB-1, the remnant of a supernova. The pulsar is trailed by a 13-light-year-long tail of magnetic energy and particles which points right back to CTB-1. About 10,000 years ago, a supernova exploded, leaving behind CTB-1 and shooting J outward. According to the new research, which has been submitted for publication to the Astrophysical Journal Letters, the pulsar is faster than 99% of pulsars for which the speed is known, as it's cruising at five times the speed of the average pulsar. It will eventually leave the Milky Way. The researchers plan to study J to better understand the supernova explosion that sent it flying, drawing in more observations from the National Science Foundation's VLBA and NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory. Further study of this object will help us better understand how these explosions are able to kick neutron stars to such high speeds, Shinsu said. Right, well that's going to do it for our program this month. I'd like to thank our sponsor again, the Holt Planetarium. Remember, the planetarium is open to the public every Sunday evening at 7pm. My name is Gary Sparks, and thank you once again for listening to Starry Nights. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thank you to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.